Okay. So we have no homework due this week. That's my other class. So homework six is due next Friday. And I have it this time. I did bring it. So didn't forget it completely this time. And then we have a quiz that'll be up next week. That'll be on these two chapters, the one we just finished on neutron stars and black holes, and then the one on, that we're doing on our Milky Way galaxy right now. Two, three. Oops. And then we have an exam coming up on the 21st, which again is the Monday of Thanksgiving week. So hopefully most of you will still be here then. There you go. And that will be on chapter, for, our, for this class, chapter 13, which we've finished, chapter 14, which we just started, and chapter 15, which will be through probably by the middle of next week. And then we have a final exam. Yay! I know. No, we're not going to say yay for that one. I know. I don't expect it. But the final exam, actually, for this class, you get the first final exam slot, I guess. So I don't know if that's good or bad. Either get it out of the way first or save it for last. That's what my other class got. They got about the last one. So one, your class is Monday from 9 to 11 right here. So right about during, right during class time. The only, the final exam I do, it's, it is two hours. It probably won't take you two hours any more than the regular exams normally took you an hour. It is twice as long as a regular exam. There will be one section on it. There will be two parts. Part, the second part will be the chapters that we haven't listed on here, 16, 17, 18, that you won't have been tested on yet. So it'll be one exam on, so it'll be like one exam. So it'll be a new material exam. The other one will be an old material exam. It'll be on the previous four. The way I make up the final exam is I go through exams one through four and I pick out questions from them. I may change those questions around a little bit. I might make a true statement, a false one. I might make a multiple choice, a fill in the blank. I mean, I may change, the, but the topics are there. So really, if you have your four exams to study, study your four exams for the final, for that part of the final, and study the new material. Don't go back and reread the chapters. You don't have to go back and re-listen to all the lectures. You know, listen to do that for the newer material. I don't want you to have to go back and try to do all of, all of that. So that's how I normally do the final. So it'll be two parts, each are equally weighted, so it'll be, like having, it'll be like having exam five on the last three chapters, and it'll be like having one exam just covering those, just to make sure that you still remember things about Newton and Galileo and all the stuff that we talked about very, very early on. So that'll be, that will be the final, and we are scheduled for 9 o'clock on the 12th. So the bad thing is that you have a lot of materials due, like that Friday before, so this class, of course, will have everything done and graded by the time they take their final. You'll still be waiting for grades like the observer's journals and things that are due the week before. I'm not going to have them. I doubt I'll have them graded by Monday morning. I will by the end of the week. So you'll be doing your final and then still waiting for some of the other grades. Okay. So, questions? No? Okay. But that's that. I'll keep that up. I'll keep it up to try to remind you. But that, that's what's coming up over the next couple of weeks. So you have one homework assignment I just gave you. The homework is on chapters 13 and, four, chapters 13 and 14 that we just covered and that we're covering. So we'll be through all of it well in time for the well in time for the, for the quiz for the homework to be due. Okay. Picture of the day then. Not a very beautiful picture of the day, huh? 
Kind of a little blob, very grainy blob. This is an asteroid, asteroid 2005 YU55. Not an amazing picture. So last time we got that nice beautiful picture with all the colors and everything. Well this was interesting. This is that asteroid and you may have heard about it. This is the one that passed by the Earth yesterday. It's about 400 meters across. So pretty good, a decent size asteroid, 400 meters. So what? Meters about a yard, so 400 yards is what, about four football fields? I mean, it's a good size asteroid. If that were to hit the Earth, it would form a crater about 10 times bigger than that. So it would form a crater. If that had hit the Earth, it would have been, crater would have been like four kilometers across. So pretty tremendous crater this thing could have hit. You know, if it happened to hit a city, it would wipe out the city very easily. Because that would be the size of the crater. It might be four kilometers, but the devastation doesn't stop at the edge of the crater. That's just the impact. It would go quite beyond that. So were something like that, that to hit, it could cause quite a bit of damage. This one actually passed between the Earth and the Moon. So it was much closer to the Moon, just inside the Earth, just inside the Moon's orbit, I think is what they said. So it passed relatively close. But if you look at the year, it may have passed close before. You know, we don't know anything about it since it was discovered. And the way the asteroid was named there, 2005, that's when it was discovered. So we haven't known about, we've only known about this asteroid for six years now. So could it have passed close to the Earth before? Could it eventually hit the Earth if it's depending on how its orbit and how the orbit of the Earth come? Eventually something like this will, and you've heard about the one 65 million years ago, right? Large impact that hit somewhere down off the coast of Mexico that is believed to be responsible for the dinosaurs' extinction. Question, yes? What do they think would happen if that if that hit us, that would cause quite a bit. Of, it would, I think they said. I think they said it would be like a. It would be the equivalent of a magnitude seven earthquake. So not a large. I mean, not a gigantic earthquake like the eights and nines that you get. But it would. It would wipe out a. If it hit a city, it would wipe out a city. Okay. I mean, if it would hit Harrisburg, we're gone. Yeah, because I saw a show about like what happens if that happens, mm -hmm. and it said that it's one supposed to hit in D.C. in like a couple of years. Hmm. Not like a couple of years, but like within the next forty years. I wouldn't see how they'd be able to know exactly where it would hit that well. That would be pretty, because it's very difficult to track them. But there is a good possibility that one will, I mean, they have hit before, and that they will hit again. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. And you say there's a good chance of it hitting the ocean too, right? But that's not a good thing. <laughs> what happens when one of these things hits the ocean? What, do you, what's, what are you going to do to say it hits the Pacific Ocean? Well, Hawaii could washed over the west coast of the U.S., the coast of Japan, you know, you get flooded through, you get flooded through everything. So, so even hitting the ocean, they say, could actually be worse because it could cause more devastation than just smashing into land, where it may be likely, you know, to hit a deserted area. But yeah, it would it would wipe it would easily wipe out a city. And this is not a very not a very big one. This is not even this is only 400 meters across, so it's not even a kilometer across. And there are many chunks out there that are kilometers or more in size that could that could hit. So, the thing is, what what can you do about it? It's not something you can do a lot about, you know. You're not going to send a spacecraft up there and blow it up like they do in the movies, right? You know, blow it up so it doesn't hit the Earth. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen like that. If you know about it far enough in advance, then you have a chance. You could deviate it a little bit. If you know about it far enough in advance, you, could, you can tend to change the orbit a little bit because it doesn't take much of a change if you're far away from the Earth. You know, if it's way out there and you, know, and you know it's coming years and years from now, you, can, you could probably give it a little bit of a push and just change its orbit a little bit. That's a possibility. That's more likely than, you know, blowing it up as it's coming into the Earth's atmosphere, blowing it up and splitting it apart. Makes for a good movie, maybe a good movie, but not necessarily good science. 
Okay. Questions? Other questions? Yes? No. No such thing. What is an asteroid made of? It's rock. Where do they come from? The asteroid belt is a belt of material between Mars and Jupiter that never quite formed a planet. So there's a lot, but they're not just confined to that. Some of them actually come in closer. Some of them actually go into the orbit of Mercury. And they'd be the things that cause all the cratering, right? That's where we get the impacts. When you look at the moon, you see all these impacts on it. They were formed from things like this. Of course, when that hits the moon, it doesn't do a lot to us. Although there was one, what was the one in the 14, I don't remember when it was, probably pushing eight, nine hundred years ago. I know there was one like in the Middle Ages that actually you could, you could see the impact. The impact was recorded on the moon. Where they actually, you know, a monk or someone who was studying saw the, saw the impact and saw the brightness of the impact on the moon. Have to look that one up. I remember reading, that's a long time ago, I remember hearing about that one. So, other questions? Nope, nope, okay. Let's go from close to the Earth to out to the Milky Way. So, I think I'd gotten up to this one last time and I said, nope, I'm not going to try to explain that in a minute and a half. So, wouldn't have gotten through it. So this is the first picture of our, first picture made of our galaxy. And this was done by William Herschel and just looking at visible stars. Now this was done several hundred years ago. So all he knew about was visible stars. There were, it was no other information about other types of electromagnetic radiation or being able to study it. But all he did was to look in different directions on the sky, certain unit, and count how many stars he saw in each direction. So the more stars he saw, the further he said he was seeing. So if he was seeing only a few stars, he said the galaxy didn't extend very far in that direction. When he was seeing more and more stars, he said the galaxy extended further. And as he counted each area, there were some areas that had a lot, some that had fewer. But he got one thing, he got about one thing right on it. He did get that the galaxy is flat. It's, not, it's even flatter than it shows here, but he did get that there's an extent to the galaxy that's very, very long like this. And that there's another direction where the galaxy is flattened. It's not very big. But he didn't know that we can't see most of our galaxy. All we're seeing is the area right around us. So if our galaxy is a disk and you have, I know, my artistic ability, but there's a center to the galaxy. So there's, this is the, the bulge or the center of the galaxy and this is the disk. It's a little like Saturn, right? then all he was seeing was a little portion of the disk. All we're seeing is that portion of the disk right around the sun. He couldn't see the rest of, this, rest of this galaxy. We can't see that from inside. We have too much gas and dust that blocks all of the radiation. All the light that comes from the center of our galaxy is blocked. We don't see it where we are. Not invisible light. In radio light that's completely different, but he didn't have that access. So all he was seeing was a little portion, and you can sort of see that looks a little bit more like what he saw. If you're just looking at this portion of the galaxy, that is what he saw. He saw a little flattened area and some more, some more material, some more stars in certain directions. As he looked towards the center of the galaxy here, you can see there, was some, there, were, there were a lot more stars in some areas. And there were some areas where there were hardly any. Much many fewer stars. It was all because of the dust in the galaxy. It was blocking out everything that he could see. So he could not see the entire extent of the galaxy. But this is one of the early maps. This is one of the earliest attempts to figure out what the galaxy was like. 
And we didn't know a lot. I mean, a galaxy, when we talk about the galaxy, I mean, our galaxy was not even considered a galaxy or anything different until the last few hundred years. So a lot of the things and concepts that we talk about the rest of this course are relatively new in astronomy. And a hundred years ago, an astronomy class would have been long since over because we wouldn't have known about it. Half of the stuff I've told you about a hundred years ago wasn't even known. And there would be no, nothing on, very little on, and nothing to very little on galaxies. If I was doing this class 60, 70, 80 years ago, you could have easily finished galaxies you know, in a couple sentences and been done. Now we've got a couple chapters to cover. Of course, then you would have gone into much more, much other material in more detail. So in a way, you get a better overview this way. He also underestimated the size of the galaxy. So our galaxy, he was only looking at this portion, so he said our galaxy was maybe about 3,000 parsecs, maybe about 9, 10,000 light years. He vastly underestimated the size of our galaxy. Again, he could only look at this little area right around us. He couldn't look at the entire galaxy. So how are we going to work or how are we going to learn about the rest of the galaxy? How are we going to learn how big our galaxy really is? We're going to take a, take a step backwards and talk about stars again. There is a type of star that we call, we talked about these, we talked about the novae and the supernovae and there's some other similar objects that I didn't go into much detail, I didn't go into much detail, I didn't really talk about. There are a group of stars called cataclysmic variables. And they are variable stars that have something cataclysmic happen to them. So in the case of a nova, it was material on a white dwarf gathering and burning and burning, eventually igniting and burning. In a supernova, it was a star that changed its brightness because it exploded. So it might have been that white dwarf star that got too massive and all of a sudden exploded, or it might have been the very massive star. There are a number of different kinds of things like this that we call cataclysmic variable stars. But there's another type of variable star where they vary in a more regular fashion, a predictable fashion. I can't predict a supernova. I can't tell you when the next supernova is going to occur. You know, might go out there tonight and find out there's a supernova occurred. Could be very, 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 very possible. Just as possible that it won't happen for the next 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. But there are other stars that we call intrinsic variables that we can we can predict exactly how bright they're going to be. Now there's a couple of different kinds of that we call intrinsic variables. And there's two that are mentioned here are our R Lyrae stars. Recognize the naming, right? We did this in a lab. I made you count all those stars to figure out what number it was. The RR just means it's a variable star. And it starts out with, remember the R, then the S, and the T. You don't need to worry about counting it again, but just to recognize that when you see something like that, it means that it was named as a variable star. And the Cepheids. Oh, it's a D. These are two different types of intrinsically variable stars. So these stars really change their brightness. They get brighter and they get fainter on a regular basis. So a variable star just means a star that gets brighter or fainter. So a supernova is technically the, you know, the extreme variable star. It gets extremely bright and then it fades off and it's gone. One of these two types of stars will get brighter and fainter and brighter and fainter and brighter and, and keep doing it forever, forever. Well, not forever, but for, forever for our point of view, not forever from an astronomical point of view. 
But these are two types. Now there's other types of stars that vary. There's stars that vary because they get eclipsed. So you get a star that might have another star with it. And if a, star pa- a fainter star passes in front of a brighter star, it's going to block out some of that light. And it's going to look a little bit fainter. That's actually the star Algol, the demon star in the constellation of Perseus. The demon star because it changed its brightness and stars weren't supposed to change. So when it was named thousands of years ago, it's the head of, it's the head of Medusa from mythology. So it was the demon star. That's why it's changing. We're explaining why it's changing. It changes on a very regular basis and it changes a brightness that you can actually go see. I mean, you can go look at it and if you look at it at one time of a certain time and you know when it's going to get its faintest, you can actually see that it's gotten a lot fainter. So it's something you can actually observe very easily. But these two are actually ones that are changing themselves. These are just the stars. There's nothing else involved. So these stars are actually unstable a little bit and they'll get bigger and smaller and therefore brighter and fainter over time. So here's a plot of what we'd see. If we look at their brightness against time, we plot how bright they get. They have a little bit and they'll get brighter and then they'll get fainter and they'll get brighter and fainter and brighter on a very, very regular basis. A time frame is normally about half a day, maybe a day. They're all about the same. They're very, very close. But that they will just constantly get brighter and fainter on a, a regular base. A Cepheid will do the same thing except on a longer period. And the period of a Cepheid can be much longer it can range from about one day, about the upper end of these, goes right into the Cepheids, and they can go as long as 100 days. So those are two. Now, so they have, one has a very short period, one has a very long period, but they're both stars that are actually pulsating. They're stars that actually get a little bit bigger and a little bit brighter and a little bit cooler, a little bit smaller and a little bit fainter over time. The picture shown here you got double vision, right? Looking at it, you see two st- see pairs of stars. Those aren't all double stars. Those are two. That's two pictures put together. So you take two pictures of the same set of stars, and you just slide one of them off a little bit. So you're looking at this star and this star. Those are the same star. Those are the same star. All you did was take one image and shift them off. You notice the one that's highlighted here. All of these look about the same, right? Brightness, brightness, all about the same. You can see the big difference here. It was really bright and it was really faint. If you take one at its peak and one at its trough, then you can see exactly, you can identify this type of star by observing it over time. So you can observe it. You can observe how this brightness variation changes. That's something very easy to measure. You know, these are the things we like to measure. We can measure how bright something gets and how faint it gets. That's very easy to measure from Earth. What we really want to get is the distance. We really, astronomy is all about learning the distances and things like that. We can get the brightnesses, that's easy. But what we have to try to find a way, and what we're going to see is that there's a relationship between the brightness and how the brightness changes and the distance to the star. There's our HR diagram again. I told you you're never going to be done with it. But all these stars occur on a certain part of the HR diagram. So here's our main sequence. Right? White dwarfs would be down here, red giants, super giants. Some of those stars on, if you remember we had that horizontal branch that went down through here on the very old clusters that happened to go right through, go right through this insta- what we call the instability strip. And Cepheids are up here with some of the other stars. So some stars as they go through their evolution 
as they go off the main sequence into the giants, they will pass through this instability strip. And when we talked about the sun, we said the sun was very well balanced. The sun, if it tried to produce a little bit more energy, it immediately expanded a tiny bit and that cooled it off and kept it, kept it exactly even. It had a very nice balance of gravity and pressure. For certain reasons, when you get into this range, this what we call the instability strip, they're still stable, but they've got much bigger oscillations. So these stars will actually produce a little bit too much energy, push them out, get bigger, then they'll cool, that'll cool them off, and they'll do it, but they'll actually oscillate a reasonable size and they'll physically change their brightness. The sun doesn't do, uh, does it almost instantaneously. The sun being a much more compact star, <coughs> excuse me, sun being a much more compact star does it really quickly. So it really quickly, if it tries to produce too much energy, it almost immediately changes. These stars being so big, they don't, re- don't realize they've changed. Okay, produce too much energy, we're getting, oh, we're getting too big, we gotta stop, it's cool off condense down again. So they have much bigger oscillations. Some of them take a hundred days. So they can over the course of you know, the time you've, since you've been in this class, you know, in August, they could have gone through one set of oscillations. Other ones you know, oscillate every day or every couple of days. But they actually are physically changing. They are physically changing in their brightness, in their size, in their temperatures, can change a little bit and enough that we could easily see that their brightnesses can you know, increase by 20, 50, double, 50%, double. But that just, just that they're variable doesn't make them useful. It's really useful if we can do something with that, because we can measure that. We can measure that variability. And what we find out is that, well, start with the RR Lyrae stars. If we plot them here, this is the pulsation period. This is the luminosity, not the apparent magnitude. That's the luminosity. That's how bright they really. Remember, that's, the, that's how bright they really are. That's how much energy they're putting out. So these ones all have the same luminosity, which means the same absolute magnitude. So if they are all exactly as bright, if they have the same absolute magnitude, you can go back to that lovely equation I made you work a while ago. You don't have to again, I'm not doing it again, but since you've seen it, now you can go back to that equation. You could go back to that equation, and if I tell you what the absolute magnitude is, parent magnitude is the easy one, we can go measure that, you can find the distances. So anytime you find an RR Lyrae star, you know immediately how bright it's supposed to be. You observe how bright it is, and you can determine the distance. So once we find an RR Lyrae star, we can determine the distance to it. Cepheids work the same way, but not quite so simply. Cepheids, if you see on the graph here, have a relationship between how bright they get, how luminous they are on the average, and their period. So the longer period Cepheids are much brighter. So when you see a Cepheid with a period of 100 days, it could be a hundred thousand times more, hundred thousand times brighter than the sun. But there's a relationship there. So if we see a pulsation period of ten days, we know how bright that star is. If we see twenty days, that's an even brighter star. Five days, that's a fainter star. If we find that number, we know once we know what that period is. Again, the period is very easy to measure. 
All you got to do is sit there and watch it. You might have to watch it for a couple days. You might have to watch it for a couple hundred days, depending on the actual period, to get that period. But once you do that, you can easily get the distances. So these two stars are going to be very good ways to get distances. The other nice thing about them, this is luminosity compared to the sun. So the sun is down here on this scale. So the sun's very faint. These objects are all very bright stars. And if we go back one slide, look where they all occur on the HR diagram. You know, the sun would be, sun would be right about here somewhere. The one. These are all much brighter stars, much bigger stars. We can see them much further away than we could see the sun. So if we were to take the sun a certain distance away, it would be essentially invisible to us. These stars can be seen, in fact, in some cases, in, even in nearby galaxies. But this is where they become useful. It's because there is a relationship between their period of oscillation and how bright they really are. And that allows us to determine the distances. And again, probably everything I've just told you here, but let's go over it one more time. Because this, this is our next big way of measuring distances. If the RR Lyrae stars have the same luminosity, again, immediately, once we know that luminosity, and we know it as soon as we identify the star as an RR Lyrae star, as soon as we know it, has that, it is an RR Lyrae star, it's got that period of about a half a day to a day, we know exactly what it we know exactly what its distance is. All we got to do is measure their apparent magnitude and calculate the distance. Cepheids, again, not quite the same. They are, there's a relationship between the period. The longer period stars are brighter. So when we looked at the Cepheids, we had, again, the graph we looked at the last time showed that as we looked at period and luminosity, that the longer the period, the larger the luminosity. But still, there was a pretty good line, it was a pretty good straight line, so if I knew was, the star was at a certain period, that's easy to measure. I can then tell you exactly what the luminosity is. And again, once I have that luminosity, once I have that absolute magnitude, I go back to that lovely log equation and calculate the distance. Again, you, I'm not going to make you calculate it again. I don't give you that assignment, I won't make you do it again. But you've seen it, you know that we can now calculate the distances. So it's very easy to get the distances to these two types of stars. And they're relatively common in the universe. You know, there's not just one or two of them around. There's a bunch in our galaxy. There's some in other galaxies. And even in some of the nearer galaxies, now we can't see them in the most distant galaxies, but we can see them in some of the very nearby galaxies to us. So we can actually use these types of stars to not only determine in distances within our galaxy, but to determine distances to some of the nearest galaxies. Okay, so that's what we've got. Okay, I went through that again on the previous slide. I kind of told you all that and went through it again here. So what this gives us is another distance, another way of determining distances. The RR Lyrae stars are very, very old stars. It's kind of like the thing our sun will become at some point. So the sun might become one of these stars five billion years from now. As it goes through, that HR, through the HR diagram, through its life, and goes back onto that horizontal branch when it's burning helium. So these stars are burning helium in their center. Then that sun may become one of those. So they are found in a lot of globular clusters. 
So when we map out the globular clusters around the galaxy and around the sun, we find a much different picture than Herschel found. Remember, Herschel was only looking at this little, he could only see this little tiny area around us and he, ma he was able to map that. Now that we can determine distances much further out using these RR Lyrae stars as an example, we can find where all of these clusters are. And instead of everything clustering around the sun, you know, we had the earth at the center of the universe, the sun at the center of the universe. Well, sun's not even at the center of the galaxy. We're way out there someplace. But we can find where all these globular clusters are and they're scattered around a center of the galaxy. So they're scattered around the galactic center. These are just big clusters that would be scattered all around our galaxy. We can measure them to great distances because a lot of them are not visible or not just in the plane. A lot of them are way out of here, way out to the sides, way out around the um, galaxy, and they're not blocked by dust. So when I'm trying to look this way through, the, through only a little bit of the galaxy, I can see much further than when I'm trying to look almost straight through the galaxy. So they're not near as obscured by dust and tells us a lot more about our galaxy. So remember we said, when we looked at the Herschel one, we said three kiloparsecs. He had about three kiloparsecs around the sun. The sun is actually almost three times further than, more than that away from the center of our galaxy. We're about 8,000 parsecs from the center of our galaxy about 25,000 light years. So light coming from the center of our galaxy, if we could see it, we can in radio waves, takes about 25,000 years to get here. The whole extent of our galaxy is about almost four times as big as that. So that was about eight kiloparsecs, this is about 30 kiloparsecs, 30,000 parsecs, or almost 100,000 light years across from one edge of a galaxy, galaxy to the other. It gives you an idea of trying to do interstellar travel. If you could travel at the speed of light, you know, if you could travel at the speed of light and you made a trip from, from us here to the center of the galaxy and back, go visit that massive black hole that's hiding there, it would take 50,000 years. It would take about 25,000 years to get there traveling at the speed of light, 25,000 years to get back. It's a long time. What if you could travel at 10 times the speed of light? Still going to take you 5,000 years. 100 times the speed, it's still going to take you hundreds, even if you could travel 100 times the speed of light, it would still take you hundreds of years just to get to the center of our galaxy and back. So it gives you an idea of how empty, how empty, how much space there is out there. I mean, we don't, you, don't see, you don't see it in the pictures. You know, when you look at a picture of everything, everything's condensed together and it looks nice and, nice and pretty and everything's nice and small and you can, you know, walk from planet to planet. It's not really quite that simple. So even, as I said, even traveling at a hundred times the speed of light, it would still take you year, years, many years to get, to get there. So you'd have to be able to travel at not just, you know, ten, a hundred times the speed, you'd have to be traveling thousands of times faster than light. Or find some other things such as you know, wormholes or some other sort of thing where you can you know, beat, light, beat light that way. So just a little aside there. But it gives us, again, this, what this does is by measuring these globular clusters and looking at their positions around the galaxy, they're not distorted by dust the way counting stars right in the plane of the galaxy is. These are all much higher out. We were looking at just this very little area here on that first plot. 
now we're seeing a much bigger extent to our, to our galaxy. And where we are, we're sitting out in the outskirts of it someplace. About two-thirds, three-quarters of the way out from the center of the galaxy. So now we've got our distance scale. We're not, not done. We still You're going to see this. This is going to come back a lot more now the rest of the, the, rest of the uh, book. You know, we started on it very early. We did a couple units. We talked about radar ranging. That only worked if you were really close to the Earth and if you were a solid surface. After about an astronomical unit, you know, your signal is going to fade out too much. So you can't send a, send a signal to the star and bounce it back and detect a distance that way. Stellar parallax was the only real direct method. That's everything hinges on accurate measurements here. Because everything else we use depends on the fact that we've actually been able to determine the distances to some of the stars. And that's again just looking at the motion of the star. That's a simple geometry. So the star is moving, the star that shifts its position because it's closer than much more distant stars. So we can measure that one. That is an actual measurement. But that only works out to about 200 parsecs. About 600, 600, 650 light years. Beyond that, we can't, and that's only a very, very small portion of the stars right around us in our galaxy. Beyond that, we have to start depending on other methods that are in, to be called indirect. Spectroscopic parallax was one. We used the HR diagram, right? We said we could figure out the spectral type of a star. If we knew the spectral type, we knew where it fall if it's a main sequence star. We know how bright it is. If I know how bright it should be, I can figure out the distance. Same thing with the variable stars that we just looked at. I can measure their period. That tells me how luminous they are. If I know their luminosity, I know their absolute magnitudes, I can figure out the distances. But I have to be able to calibrate, I have to be able to get a distance to one of them using some other method to, in order to figure this out. In order to get the whole system calibrated. So every one of these steps builds on each other. So it makes distances, and we've still got two, three, like three more steps to go on top of this. And each one builds on the previous one. So it makes distances very, very difficult in astronomy because you're building this way to this way. You're sort of walking up a ladder. So the distance ladder, you're walking up a step. And you're getting this one is good, but as you're getting each step built on top of it, it gets much, more, much, and less, much less stable as you get further, further up. And there's much greater chance for errors. And again, you'll, you'll see this several more times as we add a few more, another two or three steps on the, on the ladder. So here's a better picture of our galaxy than what Herschel had given us. Herschel, we saw just that little section right around us. But here's a better drawing of what our galaxy might look like. Again, about 30,000 parsecs, about 100,000 light years across. 8,000 parsecs, about 25,000 light years from where the sun is to the center. But you have a center of a galaxy and the bul a bulge there. So the center is way buried deep down in here. There's a bulge of stars around that. And then there's a disk, a flattened disk of material further, further out. And that's where the sun is. The sun is located in this disk of materials. That's also where all these nice bright O and B stars are. Remember the big hot stars, the ones that don't live very long. They form inside the sun's, they form in the disk of the sun. That's where all the gas and dust are. So that's where all the stars are forming. When you get towards the bulge and what we call the halo of the galaxy, that's where all the globular clusters are, there's no gas and dust left. All it is, it's already made all its stars. It's all collapsed into this disk. And what's left here are very, very old 
old stars, old clusters around. So you have younger stars in the disk, older stars out in the halo. And you'll see some other things pointed out. We point out the O and B stars, the bright blue stars. You'll also see reddish areas. Again, this is a drawing, not a picture. But you're seeing reddish areas of the emission nebula. When you look at the disk, you see lots of areas of star formation. And we'll look at some of those as we come to other galaxies as well. Now, we see this. We see that structure to the galaxy. So we saw the disk, the bulge, and I didn't draw in on the drawing here. You have sort of a big halo around it. So a halo of material around it. The disk is where we see, in the disk we see the young stars. You see young stars, you see gas, dust, you see emission nebula. A lot of the interesting pictures I've shown you all involve the galactic disk. All the stuff we looked at when we talked about star formation and stellar evolution, most of what I showed you involved the galactic disk because that's where all the material is. That's where all the gas, the dust, the nebulae, the very young stars, that's where they all form. There are no young stars in the halo. So scattered around here, there are no young stars. This is the very old stars. It has old stars. And it has a lot of globular clusters. Now when we looked at that, we did the age measurements. We measured the ages of a couple of the clusters. You looked at the globular clusters that way. And remember, they were all very old. Their, their oldest stars were stars like the sun. So all the young stars, all the O stars, all the B stars, all those very hot stars that we see prominently in the disk that are very, very bright are not, are not present. So you see two different, you see two different what we call populations of stars. You see a very young population of stars and you see a very old population of stars. And this is going to tell us something about this is going to tell us something about the formation of the galaxy and how the galaxy formed. So it'll give us some ideas as to how that formed. In the halo, in the bulge, you get a mix. This is more a mix of old and young stars. So you get a mixture there. And you can see you might think that. It's got it's partly in the halo because it's extended a little bit, but it's also right close to right in the disk. So you get a mixture of the two types of stars there. So you're seeing a couple different you're seeing a couple different areas. You're seeing again very old stars and very, very young stars. Very, very young stars. These are what we call, I don't know if your book goes into this, but these are called population one. Those are the younger stars. These are called population two. I don't remember if your book actually mentions that or not, but that's the scientific categorization. There's a population one star, which are young stars like the sun, the very hot stars. Population two were the older stars. So yes, they were classified before we had a complete understanding. Otherwise, you'd think you'd name population one the older stars and population two the newer stars. And there's actually talk of population three, which would have been the original, the very earliest, oldest stars. So you're going backwards again. I know. Got to be used to it by now, right? We've been doing that. We've been doing that since August, going working backwards. 
should just, I should just start this class at galaxies and work backwards too just to make it make more sense. Okay. But that's what we're seeing. So we're seeing three different distinct components. You see the disk of the galaxy which has one composition. You see the bulge which is kind of a mixture. And you see the halo that has a completely different population. So you have completely different sets there. And that's going to talk to us a little bit when we come back to the formation of the galaxy and tell us a little bit about how the galaxy would have formed. Now, said, now we have the advantage of looking at other wavelengths. So here's an infrared picture of our galaxy. We looked at some of the visible, we looked at visible light pictures before. There's an infrared picture. Looks similar to the visible light in that you have everything concentrated here, but you see a lot more detail. You don't see the dust near as much. You can see where the bulge would be here towards the center. And you can see the disk much better defined. And again, when we look at it in infrared, we're seeing through a lot of the dust. So we can actually look through a lot of the dust. If we look at it in radio, it's even more, even better defined. We can actually see the center of our galaxy in radio. The center of our galaxy as a radio source is extremely strong, one of the strongest radio sources in the sky. When we look at it with visible light, we can't even see it. There's that much gas and dust in between us and the center of the galaxy. So we've looked at similar pictures before again of visible light. This is one that actually shows you in infrared light. Now how do the stars orbit? Stars like the sun orbit around the center of the galaxy just like the planets orbit around the sun. They're all in a disk. They all orbit in the same direction. So they're all orbiting around the center of the galaxy. If you see here counterclockwise. So all the stars in that disk are moving around in very regular ordered orbits. You know, we can watch this, observe the sun. We can measure how long it takes us to go around the center of the galaxy. 200 and some million years it takes to go around the center of our galaxy once. So it's a long year for the sun. But they're very regular. All the orbits are the same. All the stars are moving with us around in the same, pa- in the same general pattern. When you look in the bulge, and especially in the halo, you don't get that. You get stars moving this direction, but you got this star moving this direction, and this one's going this way. They're sort of essentially random orbits. They're just randomly around there. So they're just in this halo, and some are going, you know, orbiting this way. They're still orbiting around the center of the galaxy, but they're much more irregular orbits. When we relate this to our solar system, I said the stars in the disk are like the planets. There are objects in our solar system that actually orbit like this, that actually have these very irregular orbits that come in from all directions, and those are the comets. The comets are in a big halo around our solar system, and they can come in from any which direction, and they can orbit backwards and sideways and all sorts of, all sorts of things. So in a way, if they're relating it to the solar system, the stars in the disk would be like the planets. The stars in the halo would be like the comets. They can come in from any, any which direction. But they're very random orbits. One can be going this way, one can be going the other way. Whereas within the disk, everything's going the same direction. Okay. So here's what we've got to explain. This table from your text, from your books. You don't want to try to copy the whole thing down. So if we're trying to th- talk about how the galaxy formed, here's all the properties we've got to try to explain. The galactic disk, the galactic halo, and the galactic bulge. Well, the disk is very, very flat. So why do we have a very, very flat section of the galaxy? 
And why do we have a very almost spherical big section of the big 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 section of the galaxy? So galaxy's got this big big ball big ball around it that's got all these stars moving in random directions, and inside it it's got a flat you know frisbee disk, real flat disk inside it. And then there's the bulge, which is going to be just pretty much in between each of these. The galactic disk contains young and old stars, has some old stars too. Sun's five billion years old, not really a young, young star, and there are stars around that are older than the sun in the disk. But that's where all the young stars are in the disk though. Because when you look at the halo, there's, on, there's only old stars. You don't find any young stars. You don't find any stars that only live a million years, 10 million years, 100 million years. You don't find any of those in the halo. In terms of gas and dust, you've got to explain why you have all the, why is all the gas and dust in the disk of the galaxy? There's nothing in the halo. Well, that sort of relates to the previous one, right? It has a lot of gas and dust, so it's going to have younger stars. If you've got no gas and dust, you've got no way to form a star. If you've got nothing there to form a star from, you're not going to have any, any young stars. And relating to the next one, ongoing star formation. Well, the sun is, we have, we have current star formation going. We've looked at some pictures of that. We spent chapter, was it 11, on studying the interstellar medium, all the gas and dust and how the stars formed out of that. So that's where the stars are forming in the disk. The halo, nothing for about 10 billion years. So even stars like the sun are leaving, the stars like the sun that are in the halo are moving off the main sequence. They've lived their 10 billion years and are gone, are going. How do they orbit? Well, the gas and stars move in about circular orbits. So the sun really orbits in about a circle around the center of the galaxy, just like the planets orbit in about circles. Yes, they're technically all elliptical orbits, but they're about circular around the center of, around the sun. So the planets orbit around the sun, the stars in the galaxy orbit about around the center of the galaxy about the same. And it's all flattened, it's all in two dimensions. You could draw it almost on a piece of paper and do it about to scale. There's a little bit of variation, but not much. Whereas in the halo, you need, you need a big three-dimensional sphere to do it. Because some stars are going this way and this, and every which direction you can possibly imagine within that big sphere, their orbits are moving. So it's really three-dimensional. Now we haven't talked about spiral arms yet, but we're coming up here in the next section. We'll talk about spiral arms, uh, but there are. There are spiral arms in the disk. They actually have a structure to them. So when we actually look at the, when we look at the galaxy, we actually see a structure, a coordinated structure to it. We don't see anything here. There's little structure within the halo. It's this big sphere of stars, but there's nothing there's no structures within it, there's nothing inside it that you can actually tell as, a, as any further structure. Whereas within the disk we see spiral arms and we see all sorts of other structures. Finally, what, kind of, what do they look like? Well, the disk is very yellow, very whitish. So brighter stars that look white to blue in the spiral arms, the, blue, the youngest stars in the spiral arms that are actually the very youngest ones, so they actually give a blue color to the spiral arms. The galactic halo is redder in color. So telling us again something about the prominent stars in it. The prominent stars in here are very hot blue stars. The prominent stars in the halo are going to be red stars, red giant stars. And in the bulge, again with the bulge on almost everything, you have in between. It's a yellowish white coloring to the bulge here. 
The stars are some random, but they're kind of rotating around the center. There is some site of some star formation. There is some in some dust and gas, but it's kind of a mixture in between. So we're going to come up, we have to come up with some kind of theory that we're going to talk about probably next time, since we're about out of time here, as to how the galaxy would have formed. And let me just see what's, well I'll start with this and then we'll come, we'll come back here and finish this up next time. But this is sort of what the thought is for how you would have formed. You would have had a couple clusters, a couple mini galaxies almost that would collide together to start some kind of formation and start some kind of rotation that would collapse down and eventually the initial stars that formed would have been when this whole collision occurred and would be in this whole big, di whole big sphere around the galaxy. As they start to collapse, those stars form, they stay where they were in their orbits, but every, all the dust collapses to the plane and gives us the old stars and then the young stars. I'm going to come back to that and go through that again. That's, that's the quick 30-second you know, version. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to it for a couple minutes on Friday as we finish up this chapter. And that is about the end of the time. So I will finish up there. Um, you have, you didn't get the homework. I have copies of the homework that I just gave out up here. If you came in later and need a copy of that, I do have copies of that up here. Otherwise, I will see you on Friday.